Welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic today on the show. Danny LaRue is in the building, and we're going to talk about the top two teams now in the Western Conference. The top two teams in the Western Conference, as of this moment, are the Denver Nuggets and the Sacramento Kings. Danny, these two teams are fascinating. They're really interesting. They are incredible offensive teams. We're going to talk a little bit about the other side, though. Danny, first, how are you doing, though? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, We're going to talk about those two teams. And then in the back half of the podcast, we're going to talk about just team building in general across the NBA. That's kind of our goal here. We're going to talk a little bit about what we think the future holds within team building. And let's jump in and talk a little bit about the Denver Nuggets. So what are your overall impressions of the Denver Nuggets? Let's maybe just go there to begin. Well, if we're framing this with Denver as a potential championship contender, which as the one seed in the West is kind of the way you want to think about things, the the way that I have articulated this and honed it over the years is that in order for a team to be a viable, high end, it depends more on the year, championship contender is to be elite on one end of the floor and then to be at least good to very good on the other. Now, if you could be elite on both, that's great. Doesn't usually happen that often. And so... The really good news for the Denver Nuggets is that that elite on one end of the floor, that part's not a problem. Like the their offense has been completely ridiculous, especially when Jokic has been on the floor. And historically, you know, going back through the years, generally their offense has been very good in the playoffs as well. I mean, even going back to some of the series they've lost, they've generally been very good on that front. Defensively, you're kind of battling a couple different fronts. One of them is like they're more on that good to very good part rather than the greater elite part, which is a real challenge. And then it's just, do they hold up to that standard against the best of the best? So, yeah, this is where I want to kind of jump in because they're obviously the 11th ranked defense in the NBA currently. And that seems on its face like it's good enough to win a title, right? Conceptually, sure. The problem with that is that when you actually like kind of dig into the numbers, they perform much, much worse against good teams. And I think that's kind of what you're getting to. If you look at cleaning the glass against top 10 teams in the league, they have the number 17 ranked defense over the course of 18 games against top 10 offenses in the league. They have the number 21 defensive rating in the league. So this is a team that has kind of been hit by really good offenses and by good teams. Why do we think that is? Like, is there something about their construction, about the way that they're defending that is forcing this to be an issue for them? Uh, to some extent, yes. I mean, I, I think that broadly speaking, you know, teams are better at defend, especially teams that have a smaller number of good defenders, which is something that Denver's generally done, you know, Aaron Gordon and Ken Tavius Caldwell-Pope and when Brown's on the floor, him, they're shouldering a lot of this like threat mitigation burden. And then, and they built a scheme around that that is pretty viable, but the best teams are, they threaten you in a couple different ways. One is they have multiple different people that can attack. And that's always, that's a challenge for everybody, but I think it's an especially large challenge for Denver to navigate. Then the other part of that is I think of, even with some of the hedging that they've done, Denver is still susceptible, as they have been in their playoff runs, to 
great pull-up players. And yes, those those players can be good against anybody, but Denver specifically, you could harken back to Chris Paul, torching them, some of the best Steph Curry moments last year. And again, those players are going to do well against everybody, but the problem for the Nuggets is it just so happens that that when we're talking about the best teams, they, they have more of these great players. They have either in number or in quality, often in both. And so that's going to lead to challenges. Yeah, it's really interesting because they obviously played the Bulls in their most recent game. Uh, was that? It wasn't last night. It was the night before, if I remember correctly. And it felt like to me that they were playing – a little bit more drop coverage than what we've seen previously from them. They weren't mixing their schemes a little bit. And then on top of it, I don't know if like Jokic was just like a little bit tired. Like it's very possible that he was just like not into it that game for whatever reason. It's a long season. I don't think that that is like a enormous detriment to him or to them and everything. But like Nikola Jokic like wrecked them or not Nikola Jokic, Nikola Vucevic wrecked them particularly like Vucevic had like 25 and 15 or something in that game. And Zach Levine, it felt like really caught them. He got wherever he wanted. And in large part, it was in ball screen scenarios. And I feel like this team particularly, it feels like you can catch them in ball screens. And this was the second recent game that I'd watched from them. And I tweeted this out, you know, think whatever you want about Drew Hanlon going to Cape for Joel Embiid for MVP, whatever. Of course, he's going to do it. But I do think that Drew actually brought up a very good point that the Toronto Raptors like really tried to hammer Jokic late in that game. And I do wonder a little bit. We can talk about the fact that Nikola Jokic is an unbelievable uh, playoff performer and his track record is that. We can talk about the fact that Nikola Jokic is an unbelievable player across the league. He is. I do think that he brings some limitations in terms of what you can do defensively because of his foot speed and because of his lack of rim protection. And Jokic's instincts are unbelievable. His hand-eye coordination is unbelievable. I don't think he is like a drastically negative defender over the course of the regular season, I do think that he is a bit susceptible to being exploited within certain situations. That's totally fair. And the thresholds get really high. I mean, Nate Duncan and I do top players in the league every year. And even though I've had Jokic as the worthy MVP each of the last two seasons, and as of right now, he's the front runner. Front runner doesn't mean winner. It just means front runner. I haven't had him in my top tiers because the idea that his that as great as he is offensively, it's it's a combination because it's not only that he has these deficiencies, but when a center has defensive weak points, they're harder to paper over because they're the last line of defense. And maybe you can do some little tricks. You can have them out of the primary action. You can do other things. They have the, and the Nuggets have done a better job, I would say, than most at handling that. But you still have to handle it. And with Jokic, the rim protection is a, is a key one because teams have consistently, including this year, shot extremely well around the basket. You can either deal with that by reducing the number of attempts or by making everything else harder by doing things like defensive rebound and don't foul, which Denver has been fantastic at those two things. But it leads to these challenges against the best of the best because A, you're going to be harder pressed to stop them all the time, and they can 
if you try to focus on that, they have these other things they could do. Like I didn't watch the Chicago game like you did. I was watching. I, I think I was watching Cleveland Miami, but there's there is this idea that like Denver can't take everything away, and and part of that is because they're playing. Jokic and two other really, really good offensive players who are still figuring things out on defense. And I think Porter Jr. has gotten better, but he's not yeah, great. Like it's that, that's, and, and that's one Jokic thing, too. yeah, I wanted to talk about. Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm glad you brought up Michael Porter. Like he's gotten better at not like being totally lost when he's away from the ball. He's gotten better at not it, like using his length a little bit better, it feels like, on the backside. He's no longer just like completely lost and has no idea where to go. I think he's like He's not a plus defender by any stretch, but he's gotten to the point where he's passable, I think. It's actually in some ways a similar bit of praise to Jokic. Like Jokic, I think he was overrated at times defensively in previous years, but he has improved. Like he has gotten materially better. Improved is great. It doesn't mean he's dominant or anything like that. I, I wouldn't expect him to be, but that improvement has been a part of why Denver has defended well. And one encouraging thing for... Denver partisans is that the Nuggets have defended very well, not elite, but very well in Jokic's minutes overall. The reason why they've fallen down overall in the season is that, especially for the first half, their non-Jokic defense was abysmal, like some of the worst in the league. Mm -hmm. And they're not relying on those players as much. And when you think about it from a playoff construct, I, I never worried as much about that element of Denver's flaws because they had time to figure it out, which largely they did. I wish Zeke Naji were available, but there's nothing they could do there until he gets healthy. But the other part of it is you just play those players less time in the playoffs. The problem is you also upgrade your opponents. And so that then you have to balance those forces of how much does playing your best guys more matter than playing better opponents. And for the Nuggets, I would generally say no. And on the like quality of opposition, this is actually something uh, for Clean the Glass that I think is really cool. You can filter by either top, you could do top 10, you could do different things. Top 10 in yeah. overall net rating or in overall offense. And Denver's around 20th, depending on which filter you want to use in defense against the best of the best. And yep. Now twentieth is fine. Like it's it, it's it's definitely a little it's it's a little ways from the teams like Boston and Milwaukee, but the question in some ways that I think is really interesting with this, and it's the like kind of a core conceit, is that Denver they're twenty first in defense against the top ten, but they're tenth in net rating because they can score on those teams. And yeah. so I think back to the Milwaukee Bucks when they won in twenty one. They did it the opposite way, but the core idea is. If you do what you're great at at such a high level that the other other teams can't deal with it, you can survive failings. You can survive foibles and missteps. And Milwaukee, it was their offense kept had some games where they just couldn't hit anything, and they won some of those games because they defended super well. And Denver yeah. might end up the theory of the case might be they do it the other way that they just say you can't outscore us, but. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see if that actually works. Because generally speaking, those sorts of extremes don't get you all the way to a championship unless that weakness can be better at times, which it was for the Bucks, and it theoretically could be for the Nuggets. Well, and the other part of this too is like this team, like you mentioned, is one that has very limited great defenders. I would say they have two really, really strong defenders in their starting lineup, right? Aaron Gordon and Contavious Caldwell Pope. If you take one of those two, this is something I've mentioned previously. If you take one of those two off the court, it does 
tend to create some real issues for them. Like Nikola Jokic, when both of those guys are off the court, has a 117, uh, the Nuggets have a 117.8 defensive rating. Uh, when Nikola Jokic is on with Contavious Caldwell Pope, they're at like 113, which is pretty good. If you take both of those two off and it's just Jokic, it's 117.8. Like I said, I'm like trying to like pull through this as we look. Uh, it just feels like particularly if you take one of those two off, it becomes a bigger problem. Uh, if you take both of Contavious Caldwell Pope and Aaron Gordon off the court, it's 119.6 overall as a defensive rating. And that is very, very difficult to get over for me because we can talk about like limiting rotation as much as we want in the playoffs. And I think the Nuggets will limit their rotation. But part of the reason that depth is important in the playoffs is not like covering for if a guy gets hurt, right? If Nikola Jokic gets hurt, Denver is fucked to begin with. And, and, Even so, if is Jamal, every, and so is every other team. Yeah, every other that's team 100% right. Yeah, if LeBron James gets hurt, the Lakers are fucked. If, you know, John Morant does not come back, the Grizzlies are fucked. It's That's the way this works. But even if Jamal Murray gets hurt, I think, the Nuggets are probably screwed, right? Because then you're looking at a pretty similar situation to what we saw last year in the playoffs for them, at least in terms of title contention. Yeah, right? I, I mean, one, one way of thinking about this, and is uh, you think about overall resiliency, it, it's not about, as you said, whether you can handle the first or the second best player being unavailable. Like, that that's going to sink almost everybody. It's more about can you withstand an issue to, like, I, I think of it as the four through six in particular. And yep. because odds are, you know, you're playing up to 28 games, the amount of time, the amount of variance, everything else, something's going to happen. Like, that could be... Yep. You, it could be a twisted ankle. It could be a more severe injury. You never hope that it is. And part of what makes me concerned about the Nuggets is the idea that they don't have suitable replacements. Like they don't have a discount version of player X. And and that's yeah. hard for anybody, but they really, really don't. And like one thing that I would like to see Michael Malone toy with more than I've seen is it's actually there's a really funny parallel to Russell Westbrook, another triple double MVP guy, who, albeit very different strikes and weaknesses, the idea that on that MVP season for Westbrook, part of his what they want to focus on transition or the overall offense was it allowed OKC to play more defense first players, and so the idea was basically like their offense could be good enough that they could play Stephen Adams, they could play Robertson, they could play a number of these other guys. That idea, there aren't that many great defenders on the Nuggets, but Jokic plus Brown plus Gordon plus um, KCP and then one other good offensive player, whether you want to, presumably that's going to be Jamal Murray or Michael Porter Jr. Like maybe you do that, not just at like end of game, you need you to stop. You try it out a little bit. You need to put out the water. You have a team like, let's say the Celtics that has a number of different offensive threats. And so you need to put out those fires a little bit more aggressively than before. I would be very interested in that. And, and the idea of just kind of tooling around with it, see if it works. And Jokic is so unbelievable that he can make lower usage, lower capability players do pretty well. And so they don't really have a ton of personnel in that front. And I don't know that it would work, but again, the ideas were, were, the, one of the fun things about this year is almost every team is imperfect. So you're just trying to find what might be the best path forward against a single opponent or like a, a rough stretch. 
Yeah, so I just kind of did some quick number checking on those lineups. So they've played about 617 minutes per play-by-play stats uh, with Bruce Brown, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Aaron Gordon, and Nikola Jokic. They're about plus 12 per 100 possessions, 125 offensive rating, about 113 defensive rating. So really good numbers there. Well, and that that 125 offensive rating, that's kind of proof of concept. Like the idea that... You, totally. You, like, because that's completely ridiculous. Like 125, even in this offensive environment, is appalling in a good way. Bonkers. And, and, and yeah. so if you can have the offense be that good, maybe you can load it up a little bit. Yeah, I'm not sure you can load it more. I don't know that they have the guys to do it. But you can you can make that. And the idea behind behind that concept is if the other team can't stop you, then you can make some stuff work. I think it's it's an interesting idea. And I, I will credit that's more of it than I expected from Michael Mullen. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Maybe it's just like, you know, the brain gets anecdotal at times and I haven't seen it as much as I, as I recall. But yeah, good, good to have it out there. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a, it's a key concept to kind of think about is, well, can you get there? What sort of variables, what sort of iterations can you do? And Denver has has some of that. And then they'll they'll have to weather some non Jokic storms. Presumably that's going to be foul trouble. Um, That could end up being a big challenge. Like there, there will be points in, in any playoff series or in an overall run that you're going to do that. But what freaks me out a little bit with Denver is the idea of kind of the sampling that comes into the late rounds of the playoffs, which is the teams, you know, the teams are going to be good, not only because they got there, but because they advanced through this opposition, they're probably going to be playing well because if they were hurt, they wouldn't make it through. And so maybe you face an opponent that got lucky and they advanced through that or something else. Like you could think about the Bucks facing the Atlanta Hawks in the conference finals or the Warriors with the Blazers a few years ago, where it's like, yeah, they weren't the second best team, but that happens. But the thing is, when you face, the goal is to win four times. You're going to face some really good teams. You're going to face some really good teams playing well. And they're going to have something, like whether that's the Phoenix Suns with their, you know, like maybe at that point Durant and Booker are both playing and they figured some of this stuff out. Or it's the right. the Bucks with Giannis. Or it's the Celtics with all of their different threats. And so that, it's hard. It's scary. And part of what I'm excited about this year is there isn't anybody who I feel there is, who can handle all that. There isn't Miami with the three guys. There isn't the Warriors with KD. And but Denver, I'm more concerned than than with some of these teams for those reasons. Yeah, and I think I agree. Just back to the lineup numbers. So if you play Aaron Gordon, KCP, Bruce Brown with Jokic without Porter, it's one twenty four point eight. Offensive rating one fourteen point seven. Defensive rating so plus ten. If you play uh, Aaron Gordon, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Michael Porter Jr., and Nikola Jokic. It's a plus 15.8 net rating, uh, 128.2 offensive rating, 112 defensive rating. And I would also imagine that a majority of those minutes come against starters, whereas a lot of the Bruce Brown minutes, you might get more of like a mix and match. Sure. It, it, it's, it is intriguing. And then like Jamal Murray, if you queue up as well, uh, you know, if you play – Gordon, Caldwell, Pope, Jokic, Jamal Murray without Bruce Brown. It's like a plus 17 where the defensive rating is pretty good. And then if you play that five-man lineup with Gordon, Contavious, Caldwell, Pope, Bruce Brown, Jokic, and Murray, it's plus 8.9, which is 123 offensive rating, 114 defensive rating. If you put those four without Jamal Murray, 
It is actually a plus 15 net rating, 128.6 versus 113.5. But I feel like they're going to need Jamal Murray with his shot creation at some point in the playoffs more so than in the regular season. You basically have to mix and match three of those guys with Jokic, I think, though. And that's going to be intriguing to me moving forward, especially if they play a team like the Clippers, especially if they play a team they've done like pretty well against the Warriors. I think they've beaten the Warriors both times they've played them so far, if I remember correctly. Uh, But I felt like those were like total like firefights offensively for some reason. And I want to say who have they, I want to say they played really well against another team. I think they've played pretty well against Phoenix as well this year. And I think they've actually done pretty well defensively in those games against Phoenix. I think they're 2-0 and against the Suns. So, like, the numbers all say this. It's just, like, in terms of the scheme, it's going to be really hard, I think. It, it, it To me, it's going to be hard because, okay, let's say you play flat with Jokic. Let's say you have him shift to the ball. Against Phoenix now, you have DeAndre Ayton who can actually like short roll or who can dive all the way to the basket and be like a real threat that way. And then you have all of the bailout options on the opposite side and Denver's going to be in rotation all the time in like scrambling, right? Against, let's say you play, uh, let's say you play drop against Phoenix. You're flat out dead. You can't play drop against Phoenix. I think that if Durant and Booker are healthy with Chris Paul, any team that plays drop against Phoenix is going to get absolutely eviscerated. Uh, if you play switch against them, then it's Jokic on Devin Booker, Chris Paul, or whoever. That's not great. I think there are other games, though, where they're actually pretty okay matchup-wise. Like, I think Memphis is actually a pretty good matchup for them, right? Like, that, t- that series will be absolutely, like, terrible from an offensive perspective, I think. I think that, like, you know, both... Denver obviously is like a 118, 119 offensive rating this year, but Memphis will be able to play Steven Adams, assuming he's healthy throughout a majority of that series. And when they play Steven Adams, their, their defense is just like unbelievable. So I don't like, I, I think that they are strangely schemable. They are more schemable than other teams are, in my opinion. That's very fair. Um, I don't know, though, how many of those teams are going to really, the opponents are going to put everything together. Like that, I, I think at times there's this idea yeah. of like conceptually, sure, they, they can absolutely get there, but are they going to, are they going to nail it every single time? Like we'll, we'll have to see. And like, I mean, a great example of that is the Clippers. Like the, right. the perfect iteration of the Clippers would probably give Denver a lot of trouble, but we haven't, yeah. A, we haven't seen it from them, and B, the last time these two teams played in a playoff series, Denver defended them well, and generally speaking, Denver's yeah. done a good job against the Clippers. So, like the you have to you have to square all, all that kind of stuff up, and it also will be a challenge. Like the, we brought up the lack of suitable replacements before. Of can okay, let's say one of those players gets into foul trouble. Is it Christian Brown? Is it somebody else? Like can you can you weather those storms? And how quickly does Michael Malone go to those lineups? Because as I brought up the Clippers before, the Clippers are a great example of this having conceptual workable lineups is something very different from actually deploying them. And generally speaking, coaches get to what they trust the most at some point, how early they get there, whether they make the right decisions will be pivotal, especially in a West this wide open. Yeah. And look, the other piece of this too, is just who is coming off the bench for the nuggets, Reggie Jackson, Jeff green and Thomas Bryant are the three guys that played 
like real substantial minutes beyond Bruce Brown off the bench for the Nuggets. None of those guys are great defenders. Like this team is going to go like six deep in the playoffs a lot of the time it feels like. Like Reggie Jackson will play, you know, eight to ten minutes probably because Jamal Murray will play 40, 38 to 40. Uh, Jeff Green probably plays eight to 10, I would say. And then Thomas Bryant, you know, Jokic goes 40 minutes in those games. So Bryant will play eight to 10. They're really just going to have to go six deep trying to mix and match mismatches. And look, Phoenix isn't all that deep. I just think that Phoenix's best beats Denver's best at the end of the day. And I think that like other teams are going to be able to mix and match. The, The thing that the Clippers don't do that I think is important against this Nuggets team on defense or on offense versus the Nuggets defense particularly is they move or they don't move the ball well. Right. I think that you have to be able to move the ball well, pass it, make plays to be able to beat this Denver team. And that's like a, Golden, inch- Golden State at their best moments did really well against the Nuggets last year. Yep. And and there's also the element that against certain opponents, I would be very interested in whether Michael Malone is willing to take Jokic out of the primary action. You know, basically, maybe yeah. you, maybe you have t- those three guys on the floor, and let's say it's the Suns. Now, there isn't a great place to put Jokic anywhere else, but they're pr- the Suns are probably going to play at least one limited offensive player. And so, is Monty Williams willing to use, let's call it TJ Warren, as the screener? Maybe. But we haven't really seen that much of it there, and like the the Grizzlies, they you can do that if you want to. You could you could put him somewhere else and just basically and and say you know stay tethered to this guy. We'll try to figure out the action two on two. I haven't seen as much of that from Denver as I would like. It's it's the it's the obvious counter. And the funny thing is, there's a team that does this when they have a better defensive center, and that's the Boston Celtics. They typically keep Robert Williams out of the primary action because that allows him to muck everything else up. And you're sacrificing some things, every defensive scheme does, but you're largely taking away the basket. And you're in some ways giving, you're not giving up on the concept of defending the pick and roll two on two. You're giving up on the idea of giving up a layup because of it. And maybe you'll give up some corner threes. You could do a lot of different things. And Denver doesn't have the same personnel. Like there are a lot of reasons that they can't, can't do those things, but it's, it's a wrinkle that, I'm going to, I'll call it right now. We'll see it at some point during the playoffs in an important moment. Well, and th- this is why I think Phoenix particularly, I-, I think that Monty Williams is going to go to that a lot in the playoffs. And the reason for that is we've started to see Phoenix already run some actions where they just have Durant and Booker on the weak side and they're like impossible to guard. Mm-hmm. They-, they are straight up impossible to guard when that's the case because you basically have to make an impossible choice, especially if you're in drop, but even in other circumstances where it's either, okay, we have to tag DeAndre Ayton or we have to like leave Devin Booker or Kevin Durant wide open in the corner. I would imagine we're going to see some like, you know, double drags early on in sets. We're going to see some transition play. We're also going to see some just like double, you know, double high ball screens where it is Josh Kogi, it's Tory Craig, and then it's DeAndre Ayton. DeAndre's, you know, rim running. You have uh, Akogi or Craig just pop out wide or, you know, pop out to the corner. And it's just going to be really hard. It's going to be really, really hard for them to guard that, I think. But, you know, the Clippers are also ISO-based, and it's going to be a little bit easier for them, I think. So here's my question. Do you have Denver as the favorite to come out of the Western Conference right now? Oof. I mean... So given the uncertainty that we have with not only Memphis, but the Suns, 
I think you kind of do. Like, it's it's one of those, like, they're definitely not majority chance. It's not over 50%. But plurality? Yeah, yeah probably. I mean, I, I've become more skeptical about Memphis in general, but especially with this absence and it being so undetermined right now like that and and also like with when we're talking about memphis steven adams the the reporting that came out earlier this week that that he's going to be maybe working his way back in at the start of the playoffs that's a big problem especially coming on the heels of brandon clark so their front court depth is a major major problem and we're not getting into the nitty-gritty of playoff matchups yet i think memphis has some real real challenges there and then Phoenix, like, yeah, a full-strength Phoenix team is going to be a challenge for everybody. And I actually think, not that they can defend the Nuggets well, Aiton has generally done okay. You know, like nobody yeah. does well, but he does okay. And the idea, basically, they can mitigate some of the worst stuff, and then they'll be able to score pretty well. So the, the, I think, intuitively, Phoenix probably has it. But, I mean, Kevin Durant has, A, barely played with the team, and we don't know when we don't know when he's going to be full strength and anything like that. So that's the one that I find the most juicy at the moment. And who knows? Maybe a team like the Warriors or the Clippers or somebody else figures it out sufficiently that, I, incidentally, I would be as as a Nuggets partisan, I would be more scared of playing the Warriors or the Clippers in the conference finals than I would be in the first round, because the idea would be that the only way they get there is by solving some of the stuff that would prevent them from beating Denver or would make it harder to beat them right now. And that could yeah. happen. It's hard It's hard to know. Though. There are two potential first-round matchups for Denver that, like, worry me, like, somewhat substantially. The Lakers are a real problem for them, I think. Because mm-hmm. they can put out a second big with Davis. They can put out Anthony Davis. And if you have LeBron James and Anthony Davis, you have two of the top three players on the court in that series. And that is a real problem for them. And now the Lakers can actually play big and like defensively oriented in some way around them. Like if they decide to play Austin Reeves, LeBron James, Anthony Davis mixed with like two of their other guys, basically, you know, say it's D'Angelo Russell, say it's Malik Beasley, say it's Jared Vanderbilt. That's a really, I think that's a difficult alignment for Denver to manage in a pretty real way. If those two teams are at full strength. We don't know if LeBron James is going to be at full strength. The other weird one for me is Minnesota. Mm. I think Minnesota has given them in the couple of games I've seen that I think that they've played four times. And I think that Minnesota has outscored them in those four games. But I think that they split the four game series. Minnesota has Rudy Gobert to be able to toss on them. They also have Carl Towns where you could maybe play like Rudy on the weak side in the same way that Boston plays, uh, you know, Robert Williams on the weak side or, you know, as the help defender, have Towns just like body up with Jokic the whole game. Or they can go smaller and you can have Jaden McDaniels out there with Anthony Edwards, with Mike Conley. And with that Mike Conley addition, I think their ball movement has just been much better in a way that I wonder if they can actually take advantage of Denver's specific defensive deficiencies in an interesting way. There's uh, also the question of how Anthony Edwards would fare, would fit in that series because you think about the general defensive assignments and you probably KCP, I like him best as a point of attack defender. I think that's what yep. he's what he's doing best right now. And how do you define that when a team is playing Conley and Edwards together? 
gets a little hard. And and so the idea basically, oh, basically it, it has to be it has to be KCP on Edwards. You, you, you for, have and to yeah, and then that, you I just think. you just deal with like a Conley Towns or Conley Gobert pick and roll and just see where things go. The it it, it is a really interesting series, and Minnesota's another team where like. I don't know that we'll get the best iteration of them this year. I yeah. hope we do. I hope we get the best iteration of everybody. I'm I'm not sure. I, I it's an interesting idea, and I yeah. to me that seems more like a series that would be. I, I like to define it as a a lo, like a potentially long and threatening series that doesn't actually like that Denver probably doesn't lose, and yeah. those are actually really damaging a lot of times to a team's championship hopes because you, you you add those extra games and you the risk of injury or fatigue or something else. I mean, like, for example, I don't think that's the reason Boston lost to the Warriors. It definitely played a part that they had those long yeah. seven-game series and then just kind of had to had to work their way and, and the injuries that stem from that. And so there are those ripples, and, like, you could see a series like that making Denver a less likely champion by virtue of that. Yeah, and look, we just spent – 30 minutes kind of questioning Denver in some way. Denver, I think, has like the best offensive rating right now in NBA history. And, uh, and Nicole Jokic is there. Yeah, it's the, yeah. It, the the idea like I've framed it a lot as undeniability. And the idea is like, yeah. even if you know what's coming, like in terms of personnel or scheme like that, you still can't stop it. And generally speaking, that's what the Denver Nuggets have been. And yeah. there is a reason to believe that absent the better competition that they will face, that because Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. are further away from their injuries that they can be better versions than their whole season. And like there have been times that Denver is just a house on fire offensively. And that creates a lot of other benefits, including not having to defend and transition as much. So the theory for Denver, I think it is sound and it is, it is possible and it's tantalizing because we haven't really seen a team like that do do as well as Denver might do in a yeah. long time. Yeah, it's really interesting. The, the When I keep looking at all of the numbers and everything, I keep getting very concerned by the fact that they're like 20th in the league against good offenses. And that just keeps coming up in my mind every time I think about title teams. And I keep thinking about like the schematic things that worry me about them. And then I often wonder, am I overthinking this? Because Nikola Jokic is just like unbelievable at basketball. And his like a real proven track record in the playoffs at this point. Like fuck what everybody says about Denver having not gotten to the finals yet or whatever. Nikola Jokic, if you look at him like in his performances in the playoffs, he's been unbelievable. Every time he has played in the playoffs, he has seen his numbers rise. He's seen his efficiency go up. I am a very, very big fan of what he brings in the playoffs, particularly on the offensive end. I do just have some schematic concerns about the way this team is built, and I will be intrigued to watch it play out over the course of multiple seven-game series, hopefully. Okay, let's take a quick commercial break. We're going to dive into Beam Team next. Okay, we're back. Danny, it's time to light the beam, baby. We're lighting the beam. We're talking about the Sacramento Kings. Is this your favorite team in the league? It is in the top two for me, and they played the other team last night in the New York Knicks. I freaking love both the Knicks and the Kings. 
What is so fun about this Kings team? They're phenomenal offensively, and they also have a great home crowd, and which which can be super duper fun. And in part because their defense can be shaky, that leads to them playing more entertaining games. Like there's this weird thing where <laughs> you, when you have a great offense and a shaky defense, you get a lot of these great popcorn games. And the Kings play an, an aggressive style. They run a lot and they run well. And like, and they also have De'Aaron Fox, who has been the best clutch performer in the NBA this year. And that needs to be emphasized as much as as much as really anything with the Kings. And another part of it, and I think this is one of the strongest arguments in favor of Sacramento maybe being a more dangerous, intriguing playoff team than some would than some would think, especially considering their lack of playoff pedigree, is part of what makes Sacramento great is they've been this phenomenal running team. They're fourth in cleaning the glasses transition points plus, I think it is. Um, you know, basically they're they're generating more in transition than almost anybody. And yeah. generally that that well dries up a little bit in the playoffs. Teams are getting back, they have more rest, all those sorts of things. Sacramento is also, I believe, sixth in half-court offense this year. And that, so so basically you're like, oh, you're taking away transition possessions where they're fourth, and you're swapping those out for half-court possessions where they're sixth. It's not as big a thing. There are plenty of other reasons to be concerned about Sacramento, but the strength, especially when Sabonis and Fox are on the floor of their half-court offense, is definitely intriguing. And I want to give you a stat, Sam. We were talking about this earlier. This is, I think this is a fascinating parallel. So Denver, this is the cleaning glass version of this stat. Denver, when they play against their against the top ten in the leagues, so this is I'll use clean I'll use net rating for this. Denver, they're tenth in the league in overall net rating because they're a little bit below average on defense and then fourth on offense. Sacramento against that same opposition, they're a diff, they're just a slightly worse version of that. They're twenty fourth on defense, that's a step down, but they're tenth on offense. And when you do against like the some of the the other iterations of strong teams. They do that, and so the idea of, like, they could score on almost anybody, and they can't do a great job defensively on almost anybody. So that makes them fun, but it also, like, the thing that's made Sacramento such a good regular season team is that they've demolished bad teams. Like, that is, it's a hallmark. Our mutual friend Matt Moore has always talked about this, that, like, it's the easiest, the like, the clearest way to get to, like, 45-plus wins is to just demolish bad teams. But they've yep. done well enough against good teams to be like, hey, let's take this team, let's take this team seriously. I think we should definitely take them seriously. Like I, I have no real no real qualms about that at this point. I think that they are they're worth taking seriously in part. I mean, do you know who the like second or third best clutch team in the league this year is? It's the Sacramento Kings. Yeah. They played 152 clutch minutes this season, and they have a plus 12.5 net rating in those clutch minutes. And it's in large part because De'Aaron Fox is just taking over. They have the fourth worst assist rate in clutch minutes in the NBA this season. That is a very strange number, given the fact that we associate this team with like pretty good ball movement, right? Like this is a team that with Damana Sabonis and De'Aaron Fox, they run all these fun zoom actions. They run all these fun pistol actions. They run all of these really intriguing, creative things. They're actually seventh in the NBA and assist rate overall this season. But at the end of games, it's De'Aaron Fox, and he's going to get a bucket, and he's been unbelievable this season. They're going to get a bucket. One of my favorite stats on that, Sam, is that I think the other player that you could argue, just kind of mostly on the numbers, is has been another high-level clutch performer this year, has been Joel Embiid. And Joel Embiid, in clutch situations, defined by the NBA as 
inside five minutes, inside five points. 66% true shooting on 39 usage. That is phenomenal. De'Aaron Fox is at 63, 63 true shooting on 45 usage, which is appalling. Like, it's just, just totally incredible. But here's yeah. one fascinating part of this. Sixers have tons of offensive talent. They're scoring 116 points prior to possessions in clutch time. The Kings are at 128. So that's like that's a big part of the argument is that the Kings are the Kings are scoring in these moments. They're sometimes giving up points, but they're also scoring, and they've done really really well. And I I'm a little bit less into the idea like clutch performance. Sometimes like it, it's better to not be in the clutch than to be good in the clutch. Like it's a very weird <laughs> kind of part of this. Yeah, but it is still a positive. Like you'd re- if you're in there, you'd rather be good than to be bad, of course. And one key question. I have for Sacramento, um, and this is something, and it just, it's like, honestly, it's not that different from Cleveland, and Cleveland, you know, they've been better overall this year, is how will their best players fare against superior opposition, coaching adjustments, and and greater yeah. rest? And we've never seen Sabonis really in that crucible. I mean, they've, they've played in, they, he's been in the playoffs, but it's never been to, like, what Sacramento really wants here. Fox, of course, doesn't have those reps as well. And like I brought up the Cavs, you know, Mitchell does, but Garland, Mobley, and Allen don't. So you always hope that the answer is an immediate yes. That's like, oh, well, we can cook them with gas. They could do all the stuff, even if they don't win the whole thing this year. But it generally does take some time. It does take some adjustment, and, and especially sometimes with players who aren't as physically dominant like Sabonis. Like it's that, yeah. that like craft... Craft can sometimes, it needs time to learn what the new rules are, whether that we're talking about officiating or just the overall talent level. But Sacramento, like a lot of the foundations of what they do, I actually think will work pretty well. Running hard, it diminishes, but is still good. And like they're, as you brought up, like the pistols and a lot of the offensive actions, teams will get better at scouting them. But all you can do is like make it a little less dangerous. You can't stop yeah. it entirely. I don't think, unless you have unbelievable personnel, you're just going to stop the Kings. Yeah. Uh, the the thing that worries me with them a little bit is the fact that like y- you mentioned the top 10 metrics, right? Like the metrics for them against the top 10 teams in the league in terms of point differential per cleaning the glass. Like you said, they're kind of like a knockoff version of Denver. <laughs> the, the problem is that like they're like minus four and a half per hundred possessions against the top 10 teams in the league. Right. Like they're like 20th in the league against the top 10 team in the league. You're you're right. Like they are, they are beating the brakes off of bad teams and struggling against good teams. And that's, that's what worries me. But at the same token, like it's hard to stop De'Aaron Fox from getting in the paint in close games. It's hard to stop him from being able to pull up from the mid range in those settings. Right. Like he and Damana Savonis have such synergy in those dribble handoffs. And he is just such a lightning quick athlete in terms of his ability to gain separation that like part of me kind of thinks that those close game situations like that, that is like somewhat replicable, right? Like I guess maybe against Denver, for instance, like you would try and put Contavious Caldwell Pope on him and your goal would be, okay, make his life as difficult as possible when he's trying to get to these situations. Uh, but you know, against Minnesota, they'd probably throw Jaden McDaniels on him and just say, "Jaden, use your length, swallow him up as much as you can, make this impossible." I don't know though. Like Darren's figured it out. Like Darren's just been good enough at this point where I kind of think that you have to trust him. 
You do. You do have to trust him, and especially because that's one of the best options you have. But another concern kind of on this thread for me with Sacramento is that there's a difference between the way Sacramento succeeds offensively in Denver, and that's because of the individual brilliance of Jokic. And so Sacramento, to me, when I've watched them, they need that volume of capable shooters out there on the floor. That's the only way. That's That's the way their system sinks. And it's great. That makes it work. They don't have players who can both do those things and be stout defensively. Like, you know, they're yeah. gonna be they're gonna need Kevin Herter. They're gonna need a lot of these guys to to do the best they can. And so not only is there the background with Mike Brown having defensive chops and doing everything else, and generally speaking, Nate and I talked about this a little bit with the um Oh God, what team was that? I think it was the Cavs. That defense first coaches, there's a parallel with the NFL, generally think of defensive problems, like solutions to problems first. And so, and generally get more frustrated with defensive foibles. So Sacramento's offense, if it becomes untenable to play three, four shooters around Sabonis, then be defensively, then the then the offensive game could suffer. And so there are those, yeah. those cascades, those ripples that can be a real question mark. One thing that I'm going to keep an eye on with Sack is like I think there's a possibility that they're strong in the beginning of series because they play differently, they function differently, and then once teams get a greater sense of it and they understand this is how we have to adjust our personnel, styles, makes fights, all that fun stuff, then the series kind of goes in the other direction, especially depending on what seed the Kings end up with if they have a rest advantage, which if they end up being the two, they will. Like the, the, That team will have gone through one play-in game because the seven wins the seven-eight game and then they're just fine but that does make a difference and i'm i'm very interested and like i think i i would urge i mean sacramento has clearly exceeded my expectations by a mile and a half i picked their under and i i they have blown through that i'm thrilled that they have (laughs) and and so you appreciate this for what it is, and they could absolutely win a series. I don't think they're going to win two or three. Like that's that's not really what I'm expecting. But it's they're still a really hard team to play against when they're on yeah. offense, and there's value in that. There's there there is something like I would rather, in some ways, like I, I like the idea in a playoff series of a team that is strong on one end and weak on the other, rather than like a league average on both. Because when you're facing a good opponent. They're going to be able to find stuff with that. And so, you know, I, I'm not going to think of a comparison team here for, for what that would be. But that gives you, I think it gives you more of a fighting chance. Maybe you can cobble it together defensively. Maybe the other team misses some shots or something else like that. Rather than like, I mean, maybe it was like I one of the teams that kind of fit that at times for me was those Orlando Magic teams with Fooch. Mm. Where it was like, they weren't good enough on offense to make you sweat and they were capable on defense but they weren't taking the best teams out of it like that's i think those are less interesting less compelling playoff teams than what sacramento is going to bring yeah you know honestly the thing with the kings is they they have so many shooters Mm -hmm. that you can probably figure out a way to make it work right like all of malik monk kevin herter keegan murray harrison barnes they have real gravity within their roles it's like four guys as long as you at least have two of those guys out there with Fox and Sabonis, you're probably okay on some level. Uh, if you have three of those guys out there, I mean, goodness, like you're going to be able to run whatever you want with Fox and Sabonis because I think it's just really hard to keep De'Aaron Fox out of the paint in those actions. It's just really difficult. So offensively, like I think they're going to be great in the playoffs. I do. 
I, I genuinely think they're going to be great. You're right, though. It is the defensive side. The game is going to slow down, and I just don't know what to do with that. And when the game slows down, they're going to have to find real answers in ball screen coverages on their end defensively. And De'Aaron has been great defensively at the point of attack. Like, he has battled his ass off this season and been everything that people wanted him to be when he was coming out of Kentucky is like a two-way guard, right? He's a bit small. It, it, it It's the reality of the situation, right? He's just a bit small, and you can move him, and if they end up in a situation where he's isolated on someone else, he battles, but it's just hard for him. Keegan Murray is a rookie, and you're going to be relying on him pretty substantially. Kevin Herter knows where he's supposed to be all the time. He's just a somewhat limited defender. He processes the game well. He's just limited on that end. It's it's going to be in like when you play Fox and Monk together, that's just a very small backcourt <laughs> and teams with size are going to be able to take advantage of that. So again, this is a team that I think is very schemable on defense to be able to create real opportunities. But like, look, the, the stakes here are different for Sacramento than they are for Denver. Like if Sacramento wins a playoff series, every fan in Sacramento is going to like burn the entire city down of excitement. Like they might try and like create like a new beam that shoots up literally into like mercury and like be absolutely thrilled. Right. If Denver loses in the first round, like this is chaos, right? This is super concern. If Denver only wins one playoff series, we're super concerned about the makeup of this team because we're, cash strapped we're capped into this group we have to make things up on the margins we have to try and you know win with christian brown who i think has been okay in the minutes he's played but like clearly mike malone just like does not trust young players in a pretty real way so and then they're limited in terms of draft capital moving forward as well so the stakes here are very different which is why i think we talk about these two teams in very different ways like if the king's win a playoff series everyone's ecstatic if denver loses in the conference semifinals th- this is a disaster almost context matters a ton and it's not only the first time versus many time it's also the kind of where you fit in and, and denver's younger still than most good teams but you never know how long that window is going to be and also there's the idea that matchup dependent the west is weaker right now And so, like, for a team that this is a strong shot for them, it becomes relatively stronger because we don't know what's going on with the Warriors and the Clippers and and all that. And and unfortunately, we know there are going to be other issues that come up for these teams over the next month. So there's going to be somebody else that loses their way out of this mix through an injury or through something going on. We've already seen over the last few weeks, we've already seen a couple. And so... Yeah, it's going to be a huge disappointment for Denver. I would say if they don't make the conference finals and then then at that point, situation will be there. I mean, if they lose to a really good team playing super well, maybe they're okay with it. If they lose in the finals, I think everybody understands. But before that point, we're going to have to see it. And I, I don't think that necessarily changes the way Calvin Booth and ownership builds this team moving forward. I, I think that they're kind of too... They're too locked in to necessarily dramatically change course, but it definitely changes the way they feel about it, and it sets the table for another disappointment, whether that's the start of next year 
or next playoff lending itself to a larger conversation. Let's just put it Danny, Danny, the take apocalypse that will occur if Denver loses in the second round will be something where we all have to like find a way to turn off the internet for months. They don't have to succumb to takes. And I mean, uh, there, there are all sorts of examples of teams that they thought the sky was falling and then things ended up being okay. I mean, Milwaukee's probably a good example of that. Like after the, the losses that they had and, the the team that made it to, that won the finals like i mean part of it was just giannis becoming an even larger destroyer of worlds and jokic is amazing jokic continuing to improve after winning mvps is also a phenomenal story that i think has become underappreciated in all of the nonsense that's getting discussed here and yeah. it's you know it, it that that part I, I i don't necessarily want to engage with it and like yeah there will be takes and part of the glory of this western conference playoffs is that there are going to be takes no matter what. Like this is going yeah, to be they really because, are. because even though there are flaws, there are expectations. Like you think about the, especially with some of the weaker seeds that are going to have pedigrees and the reckonings that could come there. I mean, you brought up what the Clippers need, to, what, what the Nuggets need to do. What about the Clippers? Like what happens here if they lose in the first round or even don't make it out of the play in? Like this is one of the most expensive teams in the history of the NBA. And they're, Sacramento, like that's part of why they're in the catbird seat right now, is because they're they're playing with house money. Like they have they have already yeah. they've already delivered, and that's fantastic. I'm so thrilled for their fans. I'm thrilled for their front office. And even though I don't think Vivek has been the greatest owner, I'm thrilled for Vivek. And so you just you you do that. And the fun part is you go between these phases very very quickly. It seems like it's almost instantaneous sometimes, where it's like. You're playing with house money, and then all of a sudden there's no house money. And yeah. that's that's life in the NBA. Yeah. I mean, Denver's been playing with house money for years because they've been the young team, right? And they were the injured team last year, right? So it didn't really matter. Like, anything that they dealt with was fine. And we're going through this with Memphis right now, it feels like, right? Like, Memphis, it feels like, has finally turned the corner from young team that everyone really likes to annoying team that everybody hates, and, you know, that line can be very thin from time to time. And I still enjoy Memphis quite a bit, but I understand that people are frustrated with the way it works. Uh, yeah, I mean, the line is very thin from being the team everybody loves to being the team everybody hates and wants to see lose. And we'll have to see where it goes. Okay, Danny, let's move on. The last thing I want to talk about is not this year. I want to talk about the future. And this is... Not like an eloquent transition in any way, shape, or form. It's not going to be a cool segue or anything. It's just that every time we talk, I feel like we're often talking about the draft in some way or we're talking about team building in some way. And today we didn't really do that for the first 50 minutes of the show. But I'd be remiss if we didn't get a chance to do it. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently, just because of the draft, because of everything like that, is trying to figure out where the NBA will be in five years because drafting is difficult, obviously. And part of the reason that I think drafting can fail or prospects that at the time seem great can then go on to seem less great five years down the road is not that the prospect changed, but the NBA actually changed around them. Right. It's going to be really interesting to see the schematic adjustments, to see the way the teams build around 
certain rule changes, everything across the board here. Expansion will also change like teams to a potential level if that happens within the next five years, because in general, the talent pool will dilute a little bit just, you know, by one sixteenth. And that's a real substantial uh, change to things. When I bring all of this up and I bring all of this to your attention, where do you think the next innovation is for NBA teams? Where do you think the league will be in 2028 in terms of offensive efficiency, in terms of the way the teams are running offense, in terms of like anything like this? And this is before we go to rule changes. This is before like we don't know what those could be in five years down the road. So like, this is something that like, those are things we can't determine, right? Where do we think the league is going? And do we think that the league will look, the league always looks different five years down the road from what it looks like now, from what it looks like five years ago. Where do you think the league is going within the next five years? One of my favorite things about the current NBA is that it is the most hospitable climate we've seen recently for star players with different attributes to find success. And we just spent a lot of time talking about the Denver Nuggets and the Sacramento Kings, two teams that rely heavily on offensively gifted, unnaturally offensively gifted centers that do not have the typical defensive strengths for their position. And both these teams are doing phenomenally. They have the current top two seeds in the West. Denver has more of a chance than Sacramento to win the championship, but so you have that. And I think that trend is going to continue. I think the idea that, and especially as youth development has pushed a little bit from what I understand, you would know this better than I do in the direction of if the player can do these things, if the player can run, like um, I believe it's Amen Thompson has more ball skills than his brother Osar, like more, more of those sorts of elements. Victor Wembanyama um, has more ball skills than basically anybody we've seen his size. And that's great. And so that element will be in place, but I think the bigger, so, so you'll see that. And so whoever the next physical player who has ball skills and can, can, Im- can impact the game in that way, whether they are six foot two or seven foot two, like they're going to, they will be, there's a higher chance that they will be properly utilized than there ever was yeah. before. The bigger thing, the big thing beyond that, that I'm really interested in, um, this came up actually in a discord thing recently on Dunkdown prime is I think that five years from now, there will be some solutions, better solutions to handling high pick and rolls than we currently have. I'm not sure mm-hmm. yet whether that's personnel scheme or both. My inclination is always both. And so you can think about all of the different approaches related to switching that once the, like it came into Vogue and then part of how it came out of Vogue was teams figured out some of the basics and then you had to go to different approaches and, and you, all those different things. And so Right now, there are some of those elements that we don't really have great, perfect, consistent counters for. And I don't think they're ever going to be perfect or consistent, but they can be better than they are right now. The other, the biggest lingering question for me is something you and I, the whole time we've been friends, the whole time we've been recording podcasts together, is are there just going to be more six foot seven people who can be all round players? Because yeah. they're 
if we ever can get to that point, I mean, because what you can see it when teams have that critical mass of like three to five players at that level who can actually like play in a playoff series, it just yep. bends reality. And they're the Celtics and their best moments have done that. And I credit them for also incorporating other really good players, you know, like Robert Williams. That That's not where Robert Williams is. He's really good. And at times he was the Celtics best or second best player in the finals, at least most impactful. And you can do that too. But there just aren't that many of those human beings in existence right now. And I don't know that there will be, I I haven't, you know, I don't scour the high school ranks. I wish I still could, but back in the day, like I I used to, but that is a key question because if you basically, if you can ever reach a point where you could add one more player like that to every roster or even just every playoff team, it changes all of a lot of these rotational things. You could think about somebody like Sacramento, where if you could plop, a six foot seven player who was capable on one end and intriguing on the other onto that team. Well, then you don't have to rely necessarily as much on whether yeah. it's Herter or Keegan Murray or somebody else. Like you, you can do all that, but there just aren't enough. And so if we can ever reach the point where there are more and you brought up dilution that that will factor into this as well, because it's going to be presumably you need another 16 to 32 of them rather than 30, but yeah. the more the merrier as always. And so, I think those are the big ones. Um, the other, I, I mean, we're already getting closer to this frontier, but the like how to deal with centers who are limited defensively and still be competent, and you could do that through personnel, kind of like the like the Nuggets do, because we've we're already seeing. You and I talked about this on Real GM Radio a few months ago. The idea of elite on-ball players not defending the point of attack, even if they're point guard sized. And there's going to be, I think there's going to be a shift involving that. I don't know exactly what it is yet. So, yeah, it's interesting. So I, I think that the thing that stands out most to me is just like guys that are six foot seven that can defend. And the thing that I always talk about, and I've told Schlecht, I'm going to make him come on the podcast and talk about this at some point, because I think that Oklahoma City does this better than anybody. Finding guys that are big for their positional size or like whatever their position is. They have real plus positional size. They have ball skills. They can defend and they process the game at a high level. Those are the three things that I'm looking for now. Like I want guys that have skill that have size and that process the game at a high level, almost even more than like, I want guys that are like at the level athletically, but even someone like Jalen Williams who has been phenomenal this season for Oklahoma City, he is more long than he is athletic. He has great balance and great coordination, and there are a number of things that make Jalen Wilson or Jalen Williams really, really valuable. Can we, can we just change his name to Jalen Wilson so they don't have two Jalen Williams on the same team? Like, which <laughs> well, is- the problem is we have a we have a Jalen Wilson coming in next year, so that oh, doesn't help us. And, and if he gets drafted, <laughs> Sam Presti, if you draft him, I'm coming to wherever you live. I don't think we're going to have to worry about that because I think Jalen Wilson, uh, Jalen Wilson has like very stumpy arms kind of. And I don't uh, think that that really fits with. Uh, well, so he won't be a piston. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to be OK. Then. So Jalen Williams is a very just skilled guy with length. Oklahoma City drafted Chet Holmgren last year. I think Chet Holmgren is like kind of the wave of the future as like a big guy, especially in that Robert Williams role. If I was Oklahoma City, I would be envisioning him almost as a four man in the way that Memphis uses Jaron Jackson as a four man, and then try to find another big who can shoot and space it away from the court. I would imagine that at some point that's what they're going to try and do. Find a big who can match up with bigger dudes, 
kind of like an Al Horford that lets Chet roam and use his anticipation and use his uh, incredible length and athleticism and balance to be able to be impactful all over the court. Uh, Giannis does this exceptionally well, right? But I think it's defensively where I think that the personnel adjustment is going to come in is finding those guys that are super long, big positionally, because in the NBA now, the way that spacing works, it's just impossible if you have too many guys that are small out there. You really can only have one small guy out there. The Lakers tested this this year. The Lakers should not be bad defensively. They have LeBron James, Anthony Davis. They have Austin Reeves, who's a plus defender. And they played guys that were like six foot one to six foot three, and they played at least two of them for over half of their minutes in the first half of the season. It's, and a, they surface were it's a surface area problem. Like you just have to, it, the, the floor has yes. gotten bigger. And so if you're going to cover that, you just need more space. You know, it's, just, it, it's it such is, a fascinating problem. It is genuinely a surface area problem. And I wonder if you get that kind of crazy length that allows you to cover that much space, having guys that are balanced, coordinated at six foot 10 to seven foot tall. It's why Jaden McDaniels, I think is like such a fucking phenomenal defender is he is enormous. He moves well. He has good anticipation. I think that the guys that are going to be really successful are those players. And I wonder if one of the schematic innovations that can occur, and I know people won't be like thrilled about this. I wonder if you can play a little bit more zone. Potentially, if you yeah. find those longer guys like this, that, I mean, uh, some guys Miami, are just, Miami, Toronto have dabbled in this. I, it wouldn't be a surprise. Yeah, I wonder if you can find a way to play a little bit more zone and try and just like cover ground that way all over the court. Uh, look, like some of these scrambling defenses, right? They're not like that far off. Like you're playing an area and then you're rotating and scrambling, right? To try and cover ground whenever someone else rotates around you. And it's why someone like Jared Vanderbilt is so valuable. It's why someone like Anthony Davis is still like unbelievable. Like, I don't know about you. If he plays the rest of the year, at the level that he is playing, I mean, he's got to be damn close to all defense, right? Oh yeah. I mean, he, he, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Anthony Davis is on my defensive player of the year ballot. Like that's, yeah, that's how good he's been. Yeah, the only reason to not have him there would be just due to games missed, right? The thing is that it's, I think that you just have to be able to cover ground. And part of this is that you have to have guys who are big that are also fast thinkers. Yes. With how smart offenses have gotten. It's why I'm very high on someone like Anthony Black in this year's NBA draft, who is this Arkansas guard who I think is the smartest player I've seen in this draft class in terms of the way that he processes basketball around him. Having guys that are that big, that are that quick, fast brain is what I call them. It's why like, I really like Xavier Cooks, the guy that the Wizards just signed. Xavier Cooks is six foot eight. He's rangy. He's athletic and has a really fast brain. And I think that those guys that have fast brains are able to kind of make it work. I think that that's where the league is going defensively, at least. I think that you're going to find these guys that are super long, agile, mobile defensively. And then you're Evan, Mo- like Evan Mobley might be the, the guy 
that speaks to all of this, right? Given that he's 21 and again, like a very real all defense team case right now. He's been incredible this season and he's in taking the leap in front of us and everything right now. Like I think over his last 20 games, he's averaging like 29 and three, like he's been incredible. And the funniest thing is you could argue that the prototype here, the prototype who won't be necessarily out equaled is Draymond. Like the, yeah. the, the quick, bra- quick, <laughs> quick brained is the, is the most underappreciated element of Draymond Green. And like, yes. yeah, he has long arms and everything else. He sees things defensively faster than anyone. I, I mean, it's, I've been fortunate to, to cover, to see a lot of it in person. Like there are times where like I try to I try to be fast and I'm in the arena and all that and it's like oh he's already there he's he got this like three <laughs> seconds ago and it's just like that there that is a totally different thing and if the, the if the league can start identifying and selecting for attributes like that you need to check all these other boxes too like you're not going to be yep. quick brained and slow footed like you know or, or like five yeah. nine or something like the, we're not we're not at that point yet but I think it could lead to the product ratcheting another couple degrees up in terms of watchability unless as you brought up some of the other tweaks end up slogging it a little bit we'll have to see but like it could be super duper fun yeah the evan mobley thing just like blows my mind in so many ways not that he's great he's obviously really good but it's why like in this upcoming draft i think i'm like a little bit higher on leonard miller than like some people are just because he's six foot 10 and can kind of move around and he's not that quick brain right now, but he's six foot 11 with a seven foot two wingspan, nine foot standing reach and can move. And part of his deficiency is just experience more than anything. And I wonder if you can like kind of teach him defense at a really high level, if like that can work a little bit better. Now, oh, and as a quick note, one thing that is going to be awkward during this is book smarts, that kind of thing and quick brained are not the same thing. No, so there will not. be there will be these times where players like, oh, this guy got I, basketball doesn't necessarily use the wonder look like football does, but like got this score. That's not the same thing. It's not about no. that. It's it's processing information quickly, being able to adapt on the fly, and like and I react, mean, yeah. react, and like and I don't think he does it as much defensively. But like we can go all the way back to the beginning. Jokic processes information better offensively than than almost anybody I've ever seen. And the idea yeah. that he, through anticipation and through preternatural, just ridiculous skill, is able to make passes that we that we don't see, that we haven't seen before, like that that's a template too. And the idea and, and nurturing that, cultivating it, developing it, and, and, and making that the mental adaptation a part of training is going to revolutionize everything. I think that's right. And then you brought up offense. I agree with you. I think we're going even more heliocentric than what we've seen offensively. I think that's going to continue to be the case. We, we, might, more see some, than... we might see some Tatooine Tucson stuff. That's that. I'm, I'm really <laughs> interested. You know, like the the idea that you don't it doesn't have to be one only one player all the time. The problem is yeah. it's super hard to get to. Like it's it's always been the challenge. And, you know, so like. I'm I, I'm interested in how the Dallas experiment works. I'm interested in some of these other ones, but the issue there, just like we talked about the six seven dudes, is supply. And yeah, like what, what would this be? Duo centric, not heliocentric, like sure. something like that. Yeah, I'll, leave, the two I'll person, leave that to the linguists, but sure. Yeah, like the two person centralized teams are interesting. 
I mean, the other interesting part of this is like, I think a lot of people are going to be looking at Phoenix this year to see what that looks like. If only because I wonder if people are undervaluing off ball scorers in like a pretty Devin Booker, Devin Booker, once they fully integrate Kevin Durant is going to be a monster in a way we haven't fully seen in a long time. Like I'm super duper excited. Like, and Durant's a wonderful off ball too. Like it's, it, it, the times when it's going to work with Phoenix, and we've seen a little bit of this before the ankle tweak, um, it's it's scary, and yeah, it's, it's and and like the the more the more we get players like this in the league, the more possibility is that they get that. That's part of the reason why I've been banging the drum for a Wembenyama Zion combination. Like also because those guys playing together is just kind of like the monsters. But amazing. we we can like the the more we add. Whatever their strengths are, we add those sorts of players. And also the longer guys age, you know, if we, so we can yep. get, you know, so if you can get Durant at 30, if Durant at 35 is good enough to be in this conversation instead of aging out at 33, then we start to be able to open up new permutations, new combinations than were ever possible. What do you think of the fact that we're starting to see more guys that aren't great shooters? coming into roles and having success guys like Jared Vanderbilt, Evan Mobley. Um, you know, I think we could probably point, you know, Robert Williams is another guy that like plays the four, but you know, plays like the defensive four almost and isn't really a high level shooter. Uh, I feel like Denny Avdia is a guy that like I've enjoyed watching this year for Washington. Uh, not to say he's, you know, a star by any stretch of the imagination, but plays an interesting role for them as almost like a point forward that's like really sharp defensively and moves around uh you know maxi kleba can shoot but you know maxi goes through stretches where he can't shoot uh you know tory craig josh kogi like these guys have been really valuable for phoenix so far kyle anderson kyle anderson's a guy who doesn't really shoot like he makes them when like he needs to but yeah what do we think about the fact that these guys more so than in the previous five years have found success currently, I guess. It's good for the league because it allows players who do a lot of things right, except for that, to to thrive and to, to potentially be viable. It also, though, hammers home the point of that you you need a lot of shooting around those guys. Like that that part of this still yeah. hasn't changed. the The viability of two non shooter lineups is maybe even more egregious now yeah. than it was before. And Brooklyn, at times, you know, like the idea that Ben Simmons and Nick Claxton don't really fit together. And so that's led to a marginalization of Ben Simmons because Nick Claxton has been the superior player. Like, that's a good example of of how that can go. But if we can reach the threshold where there are enough of those kind of complementary players to to make it work, then then you do it. And I I love Jared Vanderbilt. I I think that he's that he's done so that having players like that in key roles makes things better. And there, there are a lot of different ways. The Pelicans have like five different guys who fit this bill where somebody can impact the game positively without being a consistent shooter. Dyson Daniels could end up being the poster child. This for is a this. great I, example. I hope he shoots well enough in the future that he's not the poster child for this. Like that's my dream with Dyson. But the floor game, his defense as a rookie is is really, really good. And like, so you have all these different elements and so, well, the Pelicans in general are a great example of this because they yeah. have Najee Marshall, they have Herb Jones, like, you know, Trey Murphy's like a sniper from three, but like Trey Murphy is six foot 10 and, you know, mobile and defends at a reasonable level. Like, it's just like a lot of, they're, they have a lot of those guys. 
They do. And it's also this season has been an example of why you need the you need the guys ahead of them in the pecking order to make it all work because otherwise the system falls apart. But that's the way it is for everybody. Like that's not that's it's right. not different for the Pelicans. It's just the same. We're just seeing it more clearly because they haven't been healthy at the same time. But yeah, I, I, I think that it's good for that. And it's another kind of it's an interesting analog to what we we're talking about before about talented players at any size being able to have the ball is teaching every encouraging everybody to shoot because then you can have Vanderbilts you can have whatever size the Kyle Anderson's whatever size those players are and make it work because if all the shooters were six foot five and below it would create a lot of different other challenges and and the other one like that that I want to encourage people with and um, I've used various different examples of this over the years like we have gotten much more attuned to how Offensive players can be great. Great offensive players can be great in poor different elements of the game. You know, like it could be mm. like, oh, you're a really good shooter, but you don't maybe have the most versatile jump shot. You can't come off screens, can't do anything like that. The same general concepts apply defensively. It's just harder to identify. It's harder to quantify. It's harder to discuss. But yep. they're like Robert Covington. I used him for a long time. Like very good team defender, not great one-on-one defender. Yeah. And yep. Putting players in circumstances to succeed. I brought up KCP before. I like KCP better as an on-ball point of attack defender than I do like isolation switch. Like I just think it's what yeah. he does better. And you incorporate that when you're building a team and you incorporate mm. the weaknesses. It's one of my big question marks with the, the 76ers we have not really discussed on this podcast is their two best players are best in two completely different defensive schemes. And yeah, that's true. that is... Something maybe Philly, you know, maybe they're the Denver where they just bludgeon teams. They're so good offensively, they can't counter it. Or maybe they find the patchwork quilt. They they can do enough with their other guys to make it work. But that synergy on both offense and defense of your best player strengths and weaknesses, it can't be where you start because you have to accumulate talent. Like you, it doesn't yeah. matter if your players fit if they're not good enough. But yeah, yeah, yeah. at a certain point. You do need to kind of work through that, and it's really interesting that this year there happen to be a number of teams that don't quite have that scheme fit, and you don't want to build an evaluation on that whole concept on a seven-game series, but inevitably, it's not so much people like us, because we're going to talk whether whatever happens, it's the people who actually make decisions running teams. And- well, and... I think that what you're saying is why Boston, I think, has been the team throughout the season that I've just been most impressed with. I know that Milwaukee yeah. is a se- Milwaukee is the second one, right? Like Milwaukee is a team that I think has done a really, really good job of having that schematic fit, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be really, really interesting. The, I mean, the next the next three months are going to be absolute gold gems whatever you want to do it's 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 going to be one of my fate like i can't remember a time i've covered the league now for well over a decade we're getting close to 15 years i can't remember a time where unless other than injuries there is anything that happens is going to be super fun super interesting and have have some (laughs) real have some real impact on the league yeah uh danny this has all been fun tell the people where they can find your work tell the people what's going on you can um, listen, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime. Nate and I are still doing that. Of course, I also do Real GM Radio once a week. Um, I will probably be talking to Mr. Sam Vicini at some point soon. We'll have to see. That's true. And um, also written work at The Athletic. I'm actually working on something which we'll probably end up doing a whole podcast on at some point about 2025 <laughs> and how that's the next yeah. the next big thing. 
And um, also, Nate and I are going to do our last NBA strategy stream of the season. We're going to do that on Tuesday. Thunder Lakers should be super fun. And so that's Love Nate it. and I calling the game, and you watch it on League Pass, on League Pass, basically on your computer or your phone. And it's us calling it, but you see the action. It's, it was always our dream to to do that and to have the NBA's blessing on it. Has been just a joy the last couple of years. That's amazing, Danny. I absolutely love it. Uh, I have top 100 rankings out. I have rookie rankings coming soon next week, probably. I will have multiple podcasts. Spinella and I will be going live immediately after the selection show to get you prepped for everything you need to know for the NCAA tournament, which starts next week. It's the best time of year, uh, in my opinion. I absolutely love the NCAA tournament. I will be up at 3 a.m. to watch basketball games and try to stay awake. Uh, yeah, that's all I got. Uh, subscribe to the Game Theory Podcast over on YouTube. Subscribe to uh, the Game Theory Podcast over on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever podcasting platform you use. Please make sure to subscribe. I think that's all I've got, guys. Until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.